speaker. Oh my gosh, guys. Jacqueline Parrish uh, is fantastic. Please come up and speak now. I don't know what, what else to say. Um, every time I talk to Jacqueline or hear her talk, I just feel like I'm a better person after that. And so she spoke last year at LTNCon and we were really just happy that she came and spoke at all to do a breakout. And then I just kept going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. That's exactly what I want people to say at LTNCon. Those are the kinds of things no that I want our people to walk away with. Hey, don't mess this up, Jacqueline. I'm like building up <laughs> real big here. No, impossible. Absolutely impossible. Jacqueline is on staff at Swibbits. And I don't even want I've to tell you what that, that means. said like that before. Southwestern <laughs> Baptist Theological Seminary. All right. Did I get that right? I nailed it. Of course I did. So she's on staff there, and uh, she just any chance that she can to work in nerdiness and nerd culture into what she does, she does it. She lives out what it is that LTN exists to do in her daily life. A lot of times we get kind of wrapped into we have to be pastors, we have to be on staff, we have to have these titles and in these positions, and you don't. You can do it right there where you are. So we thought, man, who better than what was the most requested return speaker than Jacqueline Parrish. So you guys, please help me welcome Jacqueline Parrish to the stage. Uh, thank you all so much for having me today. Uh, well, tonight we're going to talk about why nerds make the best friends and how you can too. So to start out, we need to define a really important term. And so uh, that term would be nerd. Uh, what does it mean to be nerdy? What does it mean to be a nerd? You know, 15, 20 years ago, being a nerd was primarily a function of what you loved. You like books about wizards? Nerd. You play tabletop role-playing games? Nerd. You like comic books about superheroes? Nerd. Thing is, nowadays, a lot of those things are pretty mainstream. Most people have read or seen at least some Harry Potter. Everyone has seen at least one superhero movie. Thank you, Marvel. And even like... Even the things like D&D, not everyone plays D&D, but it's way less fringe than it used to be, thanks to things like Critical Role and Fifth Edition and Stranger Things. And so if you're looking for a distinguishing characteristic that sets nerds apart from everybody else, what you love doesn't really work anymore because those things are largely mainstream. And so in an act of what I'm realizing in this moment is actually... Uh, incredible hubris, I'm going to posit a definition of nerdiness that's going to carry us through the rest of the weekend. Y'all are allowed to disagree with me. I'm cool with that. So I would make a suggestion that being a nerd is no longer so much about what you love. It's about how we love. And I'm drawing heavily from the really incredible philosopher John Green on this one, specifically from his uh, really great work, that one video I found on YouTube. And in it... Uh, he has a really great quote about what it means to be a nerd. Nerds like us are allowed to be unironically enthusiastic about stuff. Nerds are allowed to love stuff, like jump up and down in your chair, can't control yourself, love it. When people call people nerds, mostly what they're saying is you like stuff, which is not a good insult at all, like you are too enthusiastic about the miracle of human consciousness. Being a nerd is about how we love. Nerds take enthusiastic, autotelic enjoyment in things. So I'm going to define some more terms. Uh, enthusiastic, the love that nerds have for the things that we love is qualitatively and quantitatively different than 
kind of the regular way we engage with culture and interesting things. Uh, let me give you an example. I loved Harry Potter as a kid. I was a Redwall nerd as a kid. I read Harry Potter, loved all the books, read all the books, saw all the movies, enjoyed it a lot. I was a Redwall nerd. <laughs> read every book I could get my hands on. I had posters of Mossflower Wood on my wall. I uh, got all the audiobooks and listened to them on repeat. I learned how to talk in the different dialects that the different animals use in Redwall. I was a Redwall nerd. The love I had for Redwall was qualitatively and quantitatively different than the love I had for Harry Potter. Nerds take enthusiastic enjoyment in things. They also take autotelic enjoyment in things. This is a fancy word I learned from a guy named Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, whose name is fun to say. He was a Hungarian-American psychologist who did uh, some extensive research on what he called optimal experience or flow, which is namely uh, those moments in life where we feel like we're having the most fun and we're enjoying ourselves the most. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. In it, he uses the word autotelic. The term autotelic derives from two Greek words. Mm. Auto meaning self and telos meaning goal. It refers to a self-contained activity, one that is done not with the expectations of some future benefit, but simply because doing it is itself the reward. Uh, the author Joseph Piper in his book, Leisure, The Basis of Culture, makes a similar distinction between, I'm a butcher the Latin right now, artes serviles and artes liberales, sure, servile arts and liberal arts. The servile arts are those things that we do in order to get something else. I eat vegetables because I want the nutrients that make me healthy and make me live a longer life. Servile art. I eat ice cream because I want to. <laughs> Liberal art. I do it because I want to. My enjoyment of it is autotelic. The reason I have to do it is in the doing of the thing. Consider the difference between someone saying, I'm a biologist and I'm a biology nerd. The biologist is communicating that they engage in biology on a professional level, probably for pay. Someone who says, I'm a biology nerd, what they're communicating is they love biology for itself and they want to engage in the study of biology just because they love biology. Servile art, liberal art. This is autotelic. Nerd to nerd is to enjoy enthusiastically and autotelically. It is more than that, and we'll talk more about that tomorrow, but it is not less than that. So y'all haven't kicked me out yet, so we're going to take that as a working definition of nerdiness. So if that is what nerdiness is, how does that facilitate friendship? Well, it does so, I would argue, in three ways. First of all, nerdiness provides context for unexpected friendships because common loves unite us. They can unite us with surprising speed across vast differences. If you've ever had that moment where you're like walking in the mall and you're wearing merch from that one thing you love and you see someone else who's wearing merch from the thing you love and you have that uh, 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 uh. And even if you're an introvert like me, you kind of are more interested in engaging with them as a person, literally just because they're wearing a t-shirt of something you like. I'm gonna give you an example from my own life. Uh, Back when my husband and I were dating, we were in a small group at our church, like you do, and there was a guy in that group of about um, maybe a dozen 20-somethings. Uh, we'll call him Jared, because that's his name. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he he was the platonic ideal of everything I, as a nerd, have been programmed to despise. Uh, he was everything that made fun of me in high school. He's just jock, jock. He likes the sports ball, and he obviously works out, and he looks like Clark Kent in a bad way. <laughs> and I didn't, like, hate the guy. It's fine. He goes to my church. I'm sure he loves Jesus. Um, but I wasn't really interested in him as a person at all. Sorry. Well, one night we're all having sushi at some sushi place, and we start talking about the books we love. And his eyes light up, and he leans forward, and he's like, I love Ender's Game. I love Ender's Game. And you know what I love even more? I love Speaker for the Dead. And I literally did one of these. <laughs> I think I actually said out loud, I have to rethink everything I've decided about you as a person. <laughs> and I did, because shockingly, turns out he actually is a lovely human being, even though he likes the sports ball and is a jock. Just knowing he loves a book that I love made me more interested in being his friend. Nerdiness provides context for unexpected friendships because common loves unite us. The second thing, nerdiness invites intimacy because nerdiness is a vulnerable move. What we love reveals something about who we are. Relationships do this. Who we love brings out different sides of us. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Four Loves. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friends can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Relationships, different people bring out different sides of us. There's a version of me you won't get to meet until you hang out with me and my sister Jessica. In the same way, the things we love bring out different sides of us. There's a version of me you won't get to meet unless we get to play D&D together. You see, when we allow our enthusiastic, autotelic enjoyment to spill out into the world around us, we open ourselves up both to the risk of rejection, but also to the reward of friendship. Think about when geeking out like doesn't go well at all. Like your eyes get really big and you do the big hands thing and you talk about the thing that's really exciting and your friend goes, oh, that's nice. And your heart, your heart just kind of goes into your stomach and it feels like they're rejecting you, which you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Who cares if they don't like psych? That's got nothing to do with me. But by sharing this thing that you love with them, you're sharing a part of yourself that is only brought into action by this thing you love. And so unintentionally on their part, usually it registers as rejection of you, of your own self. I want to talk about a a better example of how this can happen positively. Uh, in my D&D group, there's a guy, we'll call him Bill, because that's his name. He, we were playing D&D one night, we're in the middle of combat, and uh, we started getting distracted and started talking about what scenes in movies always make us cry, because why play D&D when you can have therapy? <laughs> So we're all talking about the scenes that always make us cry. Oh, the, you know, for Frodo, always, you know, it's all great. And he's like, okay, so there's this one scene. It's the ending scene in Mr. Holland's opus. And we're like, oh yeah, when the band plays, he's like, no, it's the scene where you find out that the redheaded girl who couldn't play the clarinet ends up becoming governor of the state. And he, he says, you know, she spent so much time believing that 
everyone in her family was musical and so she had to be musical and she spent so much time trying to be something that she wasn't and just finding out that at the end she got to become who she, she was supposed to be and who she was supposed to be was awesome. She got to be the governor and he's tearing up as he's telling us this on a Friday night around the D&D table. Now, I leave to, you know, a therapist what exactly specifically I learned about Bill that night, but I did walk away from that conversation knowing a little bit more about him, about what matters to him, about what is good and true and beautiful in his eyes, and maybe even a little bit about some things that cause him pain personally. Nerdiness invites intimacy because nerdiness is a vulnerable move. Number three, nerdiness provides context for autotelic affection. Really, this is sad, but very few of our activities or our relationships are truly autotelic in life. Most things we do, we do to get other things. I go to work because I want a paycheck and I want to forward a mission I believe in, etc. A lot of our relationships are the same way, like with my coworkers. I like my coworkers. I love my coworkers. But the primary context of our relationship is us working together on a goal moving forward. It's not just the simple autotelic enjoyment of one another as people. Nerdiness creates an atmosphere in which we can enjoy things and people for themselves and not for anything that that relationship or that activity can get us beyond them. C.S. Lewis talks about this as well. He differentiates between friendship and companionship. Companionship is when you're working together towards a common goal. Friendship is when you're engaging with something you both autotelically, intrinsically love just because you love it and you want to love it together. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste. We can imagine that among those early hunters and warriors, single individuals saw what others did not, saw that the deer was beautiful as well as edible, that hunting was fun as well as necessary, dreamed that his gods might not only be powerful, but holy. See, by setting us free to enthusiastically and autotelically enjoy things, nerdiness creates space for us to enthusiastically and autotelically enjoy people. So with that theory in place, what do we do with that? How then do we make friends through nerdiness? First of all, I would say, know why you love things and say so. Nerdiness does create context for unexpected friendships, but only if you actually open your mouth and say what you love, talk about what you love, try and share what you love in a way that other people can understand. I would have gone my whole life not realizing that Jared was actually quite a lovely human being if he hadn't taken the step to share that he loves something that turns out I love as well. So if you want to make friends through nerdiness, be willing to share what you love and why you love it and take the time to understand why do I love this? What part of me is being brought into the light and called into action by this thing that I love? Be willing to share that. Give people the chance to meet that side of you. The second one, this one's really important, approach content with a desire to understand it, the people who made it, and the people who love it. Content here meaning a book, a movie, some music, a game, a particular activity. Approach content with the desire to understand it. Uh, it's very easy to approach content with the desire to judge it or the desire to interpret it. Approach content with the posture. I want to understand the best possible version of the best possible thing this thing could be trying to tell me. 
Because remember, nerdiness is a vulnerable move. You may not like the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, but I'd really rather you didn't bash it in front of my man Bill because that matters to him. So if someone does take that moment to be vulnerable and tell you that they love something and tell you why they love something, make the effort to try and understand why they love it and what is beautiful about it and what about them is being brought into action by it. Number three, learn to enjoy other people enjoying things even when you don't enjoy the thing. <laughs> See, nerdiness does create context for autotelic enjoyment of people and autotelic enjoyment of relationships. And that can happen even when you don't really like the thing you're engaging around. Example of this in my life would be the musical Rent. I, shockingly, as someone who grew up in a Southern Baptist context, didn't see Rent when it first came out. <laughs> didn't see the movie when it first came out. All I knew about it until 2015 was that it was a musical about gay people having AIDS. <laughs> And for those of you who know and love Rent, you can recognize that as a technically accurate synopsis that's woefully inadequate. <laughs> and so I wasn't really interested in seeing Rent, so that's not for me. Well, my husband loves Rent. It's one of his favorite musicals. And so one night he's like, hey, love, can we, can we watch Rent? And I'm like, are you sure? All right, this is kind of a weird show, okay. So we sat down and we watched Rent. And because I was willing to take the effort to enjoy him enjoying this musical, first of all, I got to meet a new side of my husband that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And because I put the effort into enjoying the moment, even though I didn't instinctively enjoy the musical, I was able to learn to love the musical Rent. And now it's one of my favorites. So learn to enjoy other people enjoying things. It's okay if, you're, if it's not your favorite. You can enjoy other people enjoying things. Let nerdiness create that context for autotelic enjoyment of relationship, even when you're just enjoying something for someone else. So then, if that's how we can make friends in general, let's shift gears as we land this plane here and talk about how we can make friends through nerdiness online. Because things shift a little bit when you shift from, I gotta stop saying shift, move from <laughs> the analog world into a digital space. The first thing I would say is if you're trying to build relationships online, remember content is not a relationship. When you move from the analog world to a digital space, you suddenly are given a plethora of metrics that purport to measure quantitatively things that we experience qualitatively. You suddenly have things like downloads and clicks and engagement rates and video views to measure things like relationship, community, friendship, happiness. I do internet content for a living. I have for about a decade now. Those metrics are important, but you have to be savvy about what they actually measure. If you have a podcast that's getting 100,000 downloads a week, that's fantastic. That means your content is doing well. That doesn't necessarily mean you're building community. See, online content and community are like sermons and churches. If all you have at a church is a Sunday morning sermon and nothing else, that congregation does nothing else. You're going to have a really good Sunday morning sermon. Fantastic. Great start. But you're not going to have good community. Content and sermons play a very important part in developing community. First of all, they provide context for others to relate to each other. You listen to the sermon. Now you've got something to talk about. 
how did this meet you? What did you learn? What did you disagree with? How can we change? Same for online content. You saw the latest Twitch stream. What did you learn? What was funny? What did you enjoy? It gives people a context to relate to each other. Second of all, it helps establish the tone of the community. The way my pastor preaches on Sunday morning directly influences the way we talk to each other the whole week long. Y'all can probably think of online communities where it is very obvious listening to the way that community talks to each other, who they're listening to in that community. And so, yeah, online content is important. It doesn't equal community, but it does influence community. It establishes the tone of what's good and true and right within that community. It also helps fleshes out. It also helps flesh out the boundaries of that community. Every sermon my pastor preaches continues to flesh out what it means to be a part of my church, of what's okay and what's not okay, of what we're striving for together, and so on and so forth. Online content is the same thing. It helps flesh out the boundaries of that community in a healthy way. But content is not a relationship. Content facilitates relationship. But please don't fall into the fallacy that links and clicks and engagement rates and SEO rates are a measure of how well you're building community. They're just a measure of how many people are engaging your content. The second thing I would advise is to use social media as an on-ramp, not a home. I'm going to come back to the church analogy. If you're starting a church in a new community, you're starting a new church, you might, in addition to renting space in the community, you might also rent a billboard in the community to let people know when you meet, who your pastor is, maybe a little bit about what your church is about, give directions. But you would never mistake the church for the billboard. I would advise you approach social media in the same way. Social media is a great on-ramp. It's a great place to tell people about what you're doing and what you're building. Making it the be-all, end-all home of your community is very risky for two main reasons. Number one, social media, as it currently exists, because I still hold out hope that someone might create a better product, social media, as it currently exists, exists for one reason, to make money. I, I, work, I, I do Facebook ads for a living. It exists to make money. Facebook, for example, attracts your attention and retains it for long enough to sell your eyeballs to an advertiser who then shows you ads in hopes that you will buy their product. It's advertising space. That's what it is. And so that's not a problem. So is the billboard. Use it like a billboard. Understand that this is a great place to give people a small taste of what they can get in your community. Understand this is a great place where people can learn about what your community is about. But don't assume that your Twitter account is where your online community has to live. The second reason it's dangerous to make social media your only home for online community is because it's intensely performative in practice because everything online is public and permanent. Before I post anything online, I say to myself, public and permanent, public and permanent. Everything online is public and permanent. It doesn't really matter how well locked down your social media is. If it's showing to anyone, then you're in a situation where someone can get what you've posted, save it forever, and show it to the world. So you should assume it's public. It's also permanent. If you've posted it online, even if you take the post down later, someone can find it if they know what they're doing. And so every single thing you post online is public and permanent. It's like trying to do speed dating on a brightly lit stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people, many of which are just waiting for you to say something silly so that they can blast you for it. This is not a great context for deep, meaningful relationship. It's a good place to start. It's a good way to have an on-ramp into the online community you're building. 
but please don't think that your Instagram account is where your online community has to live. It's a great on-ramp. It's not a great home. Number three, this is pretty basic actually, if you're building an online community, have boundaries, but don't let them have you. Healthy communities have boundaries. This is a fact. So if you're going to build an online community, you need to clearly communicate your boundaries. You need to consistently enforce them. But it's also healthy to be willing to step back from those boundaries and say, have we drawn this line in the right place? When you get feedback, it's okay to go, okay, we've sat, we've talked about it, and you know what? We are going to keep this line in exactly the same place. It's also okay to go, you know what? We're going to move this two inches to the right because I think this feedback is valid. Have boundaries, clearly communicate them, consistently enforce them, but don't let them have you. Don't let them become uh, the scripture of your community. And last of all, I would say lean into your UVP. UVP is one of them fancy marketing terms that I learned on the internet. It's, it stands for unique value proposition. It just means what do you have to offer that no one else does? What does your community offer they can't, that people can't get anywhere else? And if your online community, if healthy online community through nerdiness is what you're trying to offer people, lean into that. Don't apologize for it. Mark Rosewater, who is the lead designer at Magic the Gathering, uh, is wont to say repeatedly, if no one hates your game, no one will love it either. And all he's saying is that on the bell curve of what people like, people like different things. So if you're really nailing it with the people here at this end of the bell curve, you're going to be really missing it with these people over here. That doesn't mean you have a bad game. That means you're making the game for these people, not these people. And if you decide to build healthy online community or healthy offline community through nerdiness, there's going to be people that don't like that. There's going to be people who say board games are dumb and a waste of time and video games are wildly unhealthy and irredeemable and D&D &D gives you problems. Um, <laughs> it's okay to go to those people and say, I, I understand that you think that. We're just making something that's not for you. We're making lemon tarts and you want blueberry cupcakes. There's nothing wrong with blueberry cupcakes. We're here to make lemon tarts, man. In the same way, there's probably going to be people who say, I, I don't like your idea of healthy community. The boundaries that you're drawing are not what I want. My opinions are more important than the boundaries you've drawn. It's okay to go, you know what? I think we're making something that's not for you. Doesn't mean you're bad. Doesn't mean we don't love you. It means we're making something for these people. And we're trusting that God is at work elsewhere through other, other of his people doing other things in other places. And that what they're doing will work for you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so um, I told you, <laughs> smarter much. Uh, yeah, man, Jacqueline, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, don't thank me. No, I'm thanking you. Like, okay. Every, yeah, there we go. We're do, now we're doing it. No, it's it's so great because like the everything that Jacqueline is talking about is either like something that we're currently doing at LTN or that we're actually trying to do. And you want to know why? It's because Jacqueline's an active part of our community. Y'all are basically the only social media I consume these days. And she does it for a living. Yeah, it's like. Oh my gosh. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just like I don't want Facebook. Oh, but I like the Facebook group. I'll <sighs> stay on another year. We're don't we're trying to get off Facebook. We're trying so hard. Um, <laughs> 
But I mean, hey, so what we want to do real quick is um, for a little bit here, probably the next 10 or so minutes, we're going to open it up to questions. Do you do you have any questions about anything that Jacqueline is talking? I'm not even done yet. Comments, okay. cries of outrage, accusations. Yeah, we're going to go get there. It is. There's the mic. I left it back there to change the battery. Haha, <laughs> no, Matt has to run. All right. Okay, Hi. Hey. So um there was something you said about um don't mistake the um weight the, the on ramp for the home. Mm -hmm. So if you're if the on ramp is social media, mm -hmm. where would you make the home? It's a very for very good question. Uh I think that LTN has done a good job using things like Discord or things like moderated Twitch chats or things like standalone websites, places where I, I know people at my end of the, of the religious spectrum uh, are very passionate right now about freedom of speech. And that is, that is good. We should do that. However, there's not a community anywhere at any time where you're allowed, where it's healthy to say whatever you want to whoever you want, however you want, whenever you want. It's not a thing guys. And so it's, it's okay to try and build things like this is a standalone website where we have message boards and they function in a particular way. And they're, carefully modified. That's okay. Again, we're not saying that you're a horrible person. We're saying that we're building something here that's for us. That's for people who want this. If you don't want this, that's fine. Don't come. But yeah, I would say things like standalone websites or discords, places where you can be confident that you're able to have quality control over the relationships and the conversations that are happening there. I also candidly hold out hope that someday someone will build a better social media platform than what we got. It's a big world. That's fair. Yeah. As a big Redwall fan myself, I was just curious, what's your favorite Redwall book? My favorite Redwall book. Okay, give me a second. Uh, I really, I really liked Mariel of Redwall. It was the first one I read that had a female protagonist. For those of you who don't know, the female protagonist is a warrior mouse maid who kills bad guys with a knotted rope called the Gull Whacker. Classic. Yes. Good, good, uh, you know, children's literature. And so, yeah, that was my favorite. It was the first one that had a female protagonist. And so I was, I was and I'm, like, my favorite Bible story as a kid was the one about Deborah and Jael. Shocking. And so, yeah, Mariel of Redwall off the top of my head. I also have a question. Since you said you like Harry Potter books and movies, I want to know what your favorite book or movie is, or both. Ah, uh, okay. Favorite book. Favorite book. Okay. Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> I threw the Half Blood Prince across the room. <laughs> And I, uh, the Order of the Phoenix is very well written, but I hate Umbridge so much. Um, she's she's awful, man. She's it's too real. It's too real. I think it might actually be the Prisoner of Azkaban because I like that one. <laughs> oh my god! Hey, you had the correct answer. Yay! I win. I think probably because that's where the. The story got a little bit more complex for the kids. Up until that point, it was very black and white. You got your good guys, you got your bad guys. And that introduced the themes of maybe someone I thought was evil isn't actually. Maybe the people that I've been trusting are a little bit more complex. And I liked that. 
Plus, I like serious black. Yeah. Serious. Um, I, as far as online communities go, I also have a D&D group. And a big thing that I am having a hard time with gauging, I guess, especially in like a Christian-oriented community, mm. would be violence. Mm. Um, I'm leaning towards like a really like sword and sorcery type yeah. stuff where the violence and the extra grittiness of it is part of the entertainment yeah. and is part of the coolness of it and the feel and that unique value proposition. Mm -hmm. But I don't want that. I, uh, where's that line? I have no idea. And I don't know how to promote to Christians like, Hey, look, here's an extra gory version of what we already do for fun. Like that's <laughs> huh. doesn't seem like high value, but I also I yeah. don't know where to find that line. That does make sense. The I'm going to give one answer. And you can tell me how helpful it is. What we do at our table is something that we, we use the terms of lines and veils where everyone at the table has taken time to tell our DM, this is a line I need you to never cross at the table at our table. That'd be sexual content. Like there's mild flirtation and the oh is the drow queen type stuff, but sexual content is not described. We're not into that. None of us want that. Then there's veils where it's content that we're we're comfortable having, like sort of like seeing a little bit, but we really don't want it to go too far. And with that, it would for, for me that would be violence against children. Like I'm, it's okay. Oh, this is a terrible, terrible, bad warlock person who, you know, has, you know, hurt children. Knowing that that is happening in the game doesn't bother me. I do not need a description of that because that's not, I'm not okay with that. And so that would be the first thing I would say is having the conversation with your players and finding out where are your lines? Where are your veils? What do you want? Absolutely none of, and what are you okay with knowing it's happening, but not getting an up close and personal description and violence is, Violence is, a, is actually a hard one to gauge. You're absolutely right. Because like for me, I have no, it's not going to disturb me to have a, like a scary, gory picture of some slime monster. But I, I like can't handle like a, a child like falling off a cliff. That's not okay at all. Whereas the first one is arguably way more gory. And so the lines and veils language has helped us a lot. That's helpful for you. <laughs> very different, very Thanks, different form, I noticed. Uh, my question is actually from the Twitch chat because I've been modding all over here. Um, this is from Dot. Yeah, you don't have to clap for that. Uh, <laughs> this question is from Duck Makes Things, uh, the person who used black candles that are going to come up later. Um, how can we as nerds better share our nerddom and share the love of Jesus at the same time without being forceful? Hmm. It's really good. I like that question a lot. What has helped me do that is to sit and think carefully about why I love something. I did this in the last couple of years with heist movies. I really love heist movies. Leverage is one of my favorite TV shows. No one's seen it. I don't care. It's great television. Thank you. There are dozens of us. Uh, I really like heist movies. Uh, you know, like Italian Job, that sort of thing. Ocean's Eleven, Twelve. Ah, I got the right answer again. So I really like heist movies and it took, I had to take a couple steps back and go, why do I really like movies where people steal stuff? <laughs> and I actually ended up dropping this into the chat and the LTN Facebook group. And it was very helpful 
to have that conversation with everyone in the group and be like, well, maybe you like it because of this and because of this. And that was actually really helpful fleshing out. Why do I like this? Is it just because I really want to steal stuff? It's not, I don't think. And so what has helped me in that is to, is to give thought and as your community is able to have those conversations and try and flesh out specifically what I love Jesus and everything he does in the world is wonderful. But I also love this movie where we steal stuff. I'm going to operate with the assumption that my love of the show leverage isn't entirely rooted in my sinful nature. Uh, I'm going to assume this isn't entirely just my sinful nature and try and ask the question, what about this is true, good and beautiful. That is, that is somehow reflecting off whatever is Jesus in me. And taking the time to, this is a nerdy, super nerdy thing to do, but taking the time to sit and think and be able to articulate, here is why this is beautiful to me. And beyond just the basics of, it's a good guy and a bad guy, and at the end of time, Jesus will defeat the devil. But stop and think about, what about it? What about this is beautiful to me the way Jesus is beautiful to me? And so that's what's been helpful to me, because that gives me language then to describe to people. I really love, for example, I really love heist movies because they're usually about diverse groups coming together and having a very multifaceted set of skills come together for a common goal. They're usually about bad guys getting theirs, which is very satisfying. They're also usually about bad guys who go, who would otherwise go undetected and unpunished getting theirs like in leverage. So that the answer to your question would be taking the time to sit and do some analysis of why do I love this? What about me is coming alive as a result of this and being able to articulate that to other people beyond the basics. This is so jingly. What was I thinking? <laughs> I'm going to take this off tomorrow. Sorry, y'all. Yep. Hey. I have sort of a complicated question. Um, <laughs> it's uh, sort of related to the UVP like what the reason for people coming to you is. Mm -hmm. What if after like a while of trying to figure that out, you kind of realize that it's just you? Oh. <laughs> like the thing that you want to share, the thing that you want to show to people is related or is like things that you like, but then how it relates to you mm. and where it comes from. And then just like, you know. As in like, it sounds what you're trying to say is, what if the thing I'm trying to make is so specific that I'm the only audience? Is that what you're trying to say? I guess, well. I don't know. Sorry, I, yeah. I do have some difficulty in articulating things sometimes. You're fine. So. It, it sounds like it sounds like maybe you're asking. It sounds like maybe what you're asking is it that you found something you love, but you love it for a reason that no one else can seem to relate to. I guess so. It's yeah. like being able to share my interests, but from a perspective that is that doesn't really seem to like. Hmm. It's like other people may enjoy that thing, but almost every other reason that yeah. people would enjoy is never my reason. It's like, so. I, I really love this for reason X and everyone mm -hmm. else loves it for reasons, every reason other than X. Yeah. Yeah. 
first that's really that's kind of sad it, that can feel really lonely when you feel like i'm seeing something beautiful in this that no one else is seeing huh that is really hard off the top of my head i would say still taking the time to be able to express what it is that you find beautiful about it is still worth your time even if people aren't ready to hear it yet but maybe the next step is taking a few more moments to listen to other people explain why they love the thing and to look for ways in which they link up together in a way that is beautiful i'll be honest it's it takes a long conversation for me to explain why i love rent to most people who love rent i don't look like someone at, who who loves rent and i i don't come from a community that's known for loving that kind of art about those kinds of things and so sometimes there are things you love that it's hard to share that love with other people because it's like even your love of it is different from everyone else's so i don't know maybe the answer is is finding more opportunities to listen to other people and to keep looking for where these things connect yeah that is hard Yes, um, so thinking about the idea of uh, communities are built for specific individuals or specific groups of people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about a conversation we're having a lot in the church right now about inclusivity and equity and um, some of these conversations. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on when you're in a community, what's the line for advocating for more inclusivity hmm. versus saying, okay, you know, this is who we're appealing to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. I think part of what might be helpful is that is setting your UVP, setting your UVP in such a way that it is not so narrow that it's going to drown out those various voices, if that makes sense. It's possible to set your UVP so narrowly that it's only going to appeal to a, a very specific demographic, whether that's socioeconomic or racial or just interest based. And so while it is important to lean into your UVP and focus on what you've decided to build and not apologize for it, it's also essential to take the time to make sure you're setting that in a place that is wide enough that a wide amount of people can be welcomed into it, that you're drawing the lines in pleasing places. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry my dude. <laughs> Always been exercising. Um, so in building a community, obviously they're going to grow, hopefully, because that's the goal, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. at some point there's going to be problematic individuals yeah. that come into the community. Jeez. So it's kind of a, I don't know exactly which way to ask the question. There's two thoughts in my mind. So mm. one is how many chances do you give said problematic individual before you say, see ya mm -hmm. causing too much harm in the group mm -hmm. and it's hurting everybody. Mm -hmm. Also, how do you handle trying to be a friend and love and encourage and challenge them well, mm -hmm. but at some point, maybe it, it's time to move on, right? So like, how do you, mm. like, have you had that experience or how would you encourage that to say, you know, try this, try this, try this, but at some point, and how do you do that well to protect the rest of the group? It makes, that makes, that's a very good question. 
I'll be honest, it's probably going to vary. It's probably going to vary based on the group, the size of the group and what the offense is. Because there's some things that you can do in any community that it's an immediate, like, I'm really sorry, you can't come back. You can never come back. And there's other things where it's like, you've done this eight times, my dude. I need you to stop. And so it is probably going to vary depending on the offense and depending on how often they do it. Hmm. I think it needs to be a part of the boundaries you set that that's a question you need to ask as you're setting boundaries. Setting boundaries isn't just about saying, do these things, don't do these things. It's also about setting up probably tiered and time sensitive consequences for if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you say these words, you're going to get kicked out of chat for a month. If you say them again, when you come back, you're going to get kicked out for six months, that sort of thing. And so when you're part of setting boundaries is asking those exact questions as is specific to your community, specific to the size of your community, deciding what kind of consequences there are. I personally, I would like to have, I, I would like to have a community that does have a sort of tiered system where it isn't you make one mistake and you're immediately gone forever, where you've made this mistake, we're going to explain it to you. Okay, you did it again. Okay, we're going to take away these particular privileges for a specific amount of time. You did it again. We're going to have another conversation so that people have multiple points along the way to figure out what's going on and decide to do something different. It's also worthwhile. Matt Coville, if you don't even know who Matt Coville is, oh, Matt Coville. He, he actually advocates calling, like if it happens at your table, he advocates calling people out at the table and saying, hey, Fred, whoever, that's not actually his name. <laughs> hey, Fred, you seem to want to do something at this table that no one else wants to do. Talk to me about that, my dude. This is what we're here to do. Do you not want to do this? And sometimes that's the best way to enforce a boundary is just to remind people, hey, you said you wanted to do this with us. This is what you're doing. But you're off here doing this. Tell me about why you're doing that. Is that helpful? I don't know. Matt, Matt's in charge. He didn't have a oh, oh, uh, so he did have. Oh. Uh, sorry. Hi. Uh, this one's from Twitch again. This is from Kyle Matthews. A bit more lighthearted. Hey, <laughs> Matt says hi, Kyle. Um, what advice would you give D&D players who hate writing backstories? Hate writing backstories. Huh. Well, one thing that we did at our table is we've had other people write other people's backstories. I, in our first campaign, I wrote our cleric's backstory because she just couldn't be bothered. And so sometimes just let someone else write it. Hey, you like writing backstories. Write me a backstory. I want it to be not too tragic, and I want to have a reason to have a really awesome sword. Okay, go. So just give it to someone else. <laughs> Another thing might be is to kind of like the way Vex and Vax worked in campaign one of Critical Role, have a backstory that is a part of someone else's. So it's like, oh, yeah, my buddy Fred. Fred's a good guy now. Fred really wants this backstory. And I don't really write one, but I like that backstory. So how about I just be Fred's best friend in this and just kind of fill in the gaps there and okay, let's go. And so that would be what I would suggest is honestly just have someone else write it, have your DM write it. There's probably someone in your group who likes writing backstories. It's okay to let other people write it. Unless you're wanting like those moments of like big reveals of mysteries, which is 
doesn't sound like maybe is the case. So that would be my suggestion. Another thing is uh, if you want, if you have a DM that you trust is to only give your DM the very, very, very basics of a backstory and let them fill it in for you. Uh, Molly Mock, Tea Leaf, did this in campaign two of Critical Role, where he literally, his character was an amnesiac, woke up, dug himself out of a grave, didn't know who he was, didn't know where he'd come from, and all of that filled in with the DM as they went along. So that'd be, that'd be two things you could do. I like writing backstories, man. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yay! All right. Hey, you got it. Well, first off, well, you know, <laughs> old habits die hard. Uh, thank you, first off. Thank you. Um, second, uh, in my opinion, sort of the other side of the autotelic coin is, uh, at least in a theological sense, is fasting. Mm. So I was wondering if you could perhaps expound on that a little bit, um, as generically as possible, the relationship between um, some good fasting habits and perhaps some good enjoyment habits. Yeah. Hmm. Let me think about what I know about fasting. I remember that class in seminary. <laughs> one of the goals of fasting, one of the goals of fasting is to open up time in your schedule and open up space in your inner self, your mind, your spirit, your soul to put more of Jesus. So time I would spend watching a show, I'm going to spend doing something else. One of the things that I fasted from uh, several years ago was listening to music in the car and what it ended up becoming in that example was I was, I used to listen to podcasts in the car, music in the car, radio, all that good stuff. And so every time I was driving, I said, I just sat in silence. And what had started out as a fast from music and entertainment became a feast on silence. And so what, what setting temporarily something I autotelically loved aside, it gave me space to discover something else that I loved. And so that is one way where fasting actually facilitates autotelic enjoyment is that this is what I love. This is what I love about being a nerd is there's always going to be another TV show that I love that I haven't even discovered yet. There's authors out there I've never read that if I would stop just rereading Terry Pratchett over and over again, I would have time to read them. And so that is one way fasting can facilitate autotelic enjoyment is it opens up space within us where other things can take root that might ha not, not have space because they're drowned out by other good things. Okay. I'm not in charge. Wow. You guys got a lot of questions. Um, we'll take two more questions and we'll do one IRL and one from the Twitch chat. And then I gotta cut you guys off. <laughs> this is kind of a—I don't know—it's not complicated. So online, I've, I'm a—I'm a content creator in the sense I make a podcast. Yeah. I twitch very casually, but one dynamic I've noticed is there's lots of Christian content creators, and I'm—I'm I'm not saying negative about anything. I, I'm not—I'm just noticing a dynamic that a lot of them are basically making what seems to be or can end up being whether it's their intention or not uh, mm. a christian club mm. centered around whatever their program is and they're yeah. not so one thing i like about ltn has always been it's we're not just a bunch of churchy christian people doing a churchy christian version of a thing yeah 
we actually are centered on outreach and stuff. So how can Christian content creators mm -hmm. avoid that mm. where we don't just become a place where Christians come to hang out and yeah. avoid the rest of the world? Yeah, I'm the I'm the Christian co-carnage. I'm the Christian Matt Mercer. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. That's a very good question. Because if Christian movies, if many Christian movies have taught us anything, it's that just because you have a good sermon doesn't mean it's going to make good art because they're different. So I think one thing it's important to do is to be a guest in other people's spaces. That's one of the things that was really good for me about watching Rent is seeing Rent on stage. I'm, I'm a pretty darn conservative Christian. That's not my space. I'm, I'm taking up space in someone else's world. I'm hearing about very real pain that I'll never experience. And so taking time to sit in other people's places where you might be uncomfortable, as when you watch Rent sometimes, but taking time to sit in spaces that maybe aren't Christian friendly, maybe aren't family friendly, as is comfortable with you, taking time to sit in someone else's space and hear what those people are actually, those people, what other people are actually talking about and what they actually enjoy and what they really want, what kind of content they really want to consume. That's really great marketing research for the kind of content you want to create. Because if C.S. Lewis and Tolkien have taught us anything, it's that you can definitely love Jesus and write incredible fantasy literature. And you can even be pretty Jesus-y about it in the case of C.S. Lewis. But I think part of the reason they were able to do that is because they had a firm enough grasp on what, what everyone wants from a good story. And so one of the most helpful things I would say is to take time and do some market research and sit in other people's spaces and listen to what they find good and true and beautiful and find out where their version of optimal reality and your version of optimal reality overlap and make that the common ground from which you can actually start building something beautiful that they can appreciate. I do. Uh, I only have one more, thankfully. Uh, I have to scroll and find it because it got buried. Uh, oh, there it is. Uh, this is from Tadal. Um, what do you do to encourage the growth and relationships of your community when it is bigger than you? When it's bigger than you? Yeah, that's what he said. What do you like when your community is like larger than just you and your group? How do you encourage the growth and the growth in relationships within that? Hmm. As in like, like letting other people in, but then also increasing connectivity within the community. This is really scary, but one of the things that me and my husband have found that increases community and vulnerability crazy fast is, is, is being vulnerable yourself, especially when like, come on, if y'all are Jesus-y types, those of you who are Jesus-y types, you've probably been in a church that you loved and you liked being there, but maybe you didn't feel as close to the other people in that community as you wish you did. The things that have brought about, two things have brought about community for me and my husband in places like that. Number one is consistently showing up and serving again and again and again and again until we earned people's trust and they were willing to open up to us. And the other thing was as the spirit leads and as judicious thought would have it, opening up and being very vulnerable about who we are, where we've come from, what we're struggling with. 
there, there is a incredible amount of power in being able to be vulnerable with people because even if what you're struggling with is very different from what they're struggling with, the simple act of kind of just taking your heart out and setting it on the table a little bit, a lot of people, it's very beautiful to watch the moment where people have their, their eyes light up and they realize, oh God, I'm not the only one. If, if God can handle all of that, whew, then maybe God can handle what I'm doing. So that is one way I would say, if you're looking to increase intimacy, connectivity, vulnerability, as the spirit leads judiciously with the people that you believe you can trust, the information you have, choose to be, be vulnerable with people. Someone has to go first or we'll just all stay walled up from each other. That's one way. Awesome. Hey, Jacqueline, thank you. Oh, you're good. Yeah. I would get off the stage before they ask more questions. That's what I would do. Yeah.